0: with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality. The author of Reclaiming Authenticity When Ancestors Weep and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding your courage to reclaim that which has always, always been in you. Every Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time and noon Pacific Standard Time, I am very happy to be with you here to share this hour with you. And uh, each and every week, as you know, if you've been listening and following along, these broadcasts focus on the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all within the context of our relationships with one another, with ourselves, and God or the divine. And the reason why uh, our relationships are so important, because when you think about it, uh, it is through relationships where we often receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual wounds. And yet, the irony is that we can also discover our greatest healing and strength and peace and forgiveness and love through healthier relationships, these relationships could be, you know, well within our own families, co-workers, colleagues, friends, other acquaintances, uh, other authority figures in our lives. Because whenever we are able to transform and we heal from these wounds, we also find that we can transform others simply by our presence, our grace and understanding. Or in other words, just simply how we sit with people, how we are around them, how do we talk to them. And so forth. But first and foremost, forgiveness, kindness and compassion uh, begins with how we treat ourselves, because whenever we are compassionate with ourselves, we can then be compassionate with others. And whenever we are forgiving with ourselves, we can then be more forgiving with others and excuse me and when we are able to live in gratitude with ourselves we then discover how gratitude opens our hearts and we live in that gratitude with others transformation first and foremost begins with us or as henry Nouwen used to put it just by paying attention to what's going on around us, Uh, we are able then to discover that there are people who heal each other's wounds and forgive each other's offenses and share their possessions or foster the spirit of community and celebrate the gifts that they have received and live in constant anticipation of the full manifestation of God's glory. Well, I'm Dr. James Hauck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to uh, visit the website. That address is www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. www.bbsradio.com backslash Reclaiming Authenticity. All one word. And just in case you're not able to spend the full hour with me today, that's fine because these broadcasts are podcasted. In case you want to go back and listen again or you can go back into the archives and listen to previous shows. And if you would like to call in and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, be a part of today's show, I invite you to call the toll-free 9. It's uh, 888- Six two seven six zero zero eight. That's eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. And I want you to give me your insights, your comments, and your thoughts on today's subject: the real victims of a canceled culture. The real victims of a canceled culture. This is a term that's been been kicked around a lot over the years, and um, I would have to say there's nothing new about it you know it's it's just repeating the same old patterns that have been found in in the history of humanity. So at any rate I invite you to call in and I uh, usually take uh, uh phone calls after the break but I'm going to invite you to call in whenever you feel that you would like to to uh, talk about just who are the real victims of a canceled culture. Well all in all um You know, if you've been following me for a while now, um, you know that uh, one of my uh, firm beliefs is that all of us uh, come into this world already equipped and graced with everything that we need in this life in terms of our, our, our skills, our talents strengths, character traits, giftedness, and so on and so on. But yet, as we go along in life, and maybe due to some unpleasant experiences, we may feel like we need to hide the very best parts of ourselves, uh, because at some point, they those very best things of ourselves, those traits and so forth, were exploited by others, or maybe there was they were ridiculed, or maybe we experienced shame and so forth. And this is something we're going to talk more about here um, with the real victims of the canceled culture and just the the implications of that and what it does to our – not only our psyche, our emotions, but what it can do to us physically and what it also can do to us uh, spiritually. So at any rate, whenever we face any kind of uh, shame or shaming behavior, we may feel like we need to hide uh, or we push our giftedness way down so that others cannot see it. So we will not face that pain again or to be exploited again. Or another part of the canceled culture is that uh, perhaps we are told that, uh, you know, you're never going to amount to anything because as we see you now, that's all you're ever going to be. OK, or whatever other voice we heard telling us that there's really nothing special to us, which is just a flat out lie. Uh, but at any rate, we go through life and we don't you know, realize our giftedness. We, we tend to forget that the very best parts of ourselves have yet to come out and have yet to be shown and get to be lived out in relationships. And we go, from a, uh, we go through life functioning from a place of woundedness or from a place of victimhood instead of a place of healing or wholeness, and we never get a chance to embrace the uniqueness of who we are, or in good Latin terms, Haciatas. Well, how are you doing today? How is your heart today? I hope you're well, and I hope your loved ones are well. And I hope you had an opportunity to celebrate St. Patrick's Day this week in a manner that was fitting. Um, Now, I have to share with you that I do not have one drop of Irish blood in me, so to speak, uh, with a name like Hauk. That is German, uh, some Polish is in there, some... um, Uh, Hungarian and so forth and uh, on my mother's side there were some Portuguese so um, interesting the foods that I grew up with so uh, it was my way of honoring uh, St. Patrick's Day not by having corned beef and cabbage I I didn't have that although I like corned beef but uh no my way of celebrating St. Patrick's Day was with a, like a German twist and I I had stuffed cabbage instead which was uh, quite delicious and I was uh, raised on that uh, practically my uh, whole childhood so I had developed quite a taste for that so but I hope your uh, St. Patrick's Day was was safe Well, let me ask you a question as we get started this afternoon. Um, Probably something that we can all, you know, shake our heads and like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, happened to me too. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been unfriended by somebody that you were friends on with on Facebook? Have you ever been unfriended by somebody you were a Facebook friends with? Or what about Instagram? was your Instagram account ever canceled or did people just stop following you just because, you know, they read something that you posted or, or whatever, you know, like you, you may have posted a comment or a picture that somebody found offensive. And before you knew it, uh, you were unfriended or, uh, deleted with, with really no explanation other than you are now blocked from that person. Or, You know, perhaps, you know, if we want to flip this around, perhaps we came across something that's offensive, whether it's a a picture or a comment that was posted in which you found offensive or that you disagree with. And before you knew it, you blocked that material. You blocked that person. You unfriended that person. Okay. And this happens all the time. Just ask anybody who's an avid follower on something through um, social media. <clears throat> OK, but let's go deeper with this example. Let's say you're unfriended with no explanation and as a result, you are forever banned from that friendship. You are excluded, you are excommunicated, let's say you know for lack of a better word, but people tend to, to know that phrase being excommunicated. And, uh, although it may be hurtful, uh, to be unfriended by another, and you might look around and say, well, what did I do? What did I say? Uh, but you hear nothing from the person. Um, there are some people out there who consider unfriending somebody or blocking somebody or just, you know, dropping out of uh, the friendship to be a legitimate course of action. In fact, uh, unfriending somebody or, or blocking them from your email address or other social media avenues ought to be well within our right as a means to protect ourselves. You know, Because you and I both know that the internet can be used to justify a very invasive culture in which privacy is not respected. Okay? So let's just start with one prime example here. Let's just start with cyberbullying. You know, this is a term that has become part of our culture or part of our lingo, unfortunately, Uh, but it is part of uh, behavior of shaming another or defacing another person. And this relentless harassment of another person because of their gender or their skin color or their sexual orientation or their culture or religion and whatever reputation and or socioeconomic status that is often the focus of another person's humiliation or as a means to uh, attempt to humiliate the person and this is all based on the externals you've heard me talk about this before you know uh, you know would, would it be gender skin color culture religion you know and so forth these are all externals and you know And shame hits these, you know, once we take these in, these messages, and we internalize that shame, and that's where we start to have problems, uh, you know, not just emotionally, but also psychologically, and shame also has devastating results on us physically and even spiritually. Well, I came across an interesting survey a couple of weeks ago um, that it was conducted a few years back in which parents Reported that their children were getting bullied at school and or online, and uh, the company who did this research is called uh, Compartech and they conducted a survey of over a thousand parents of children over the age of five. And interesting, their results that they found, uh, they said that uh, about forty-eight percent. Of parents with children ages between 6 and 10 and we're talking early childhood ages you know elementary school reported that their children were bullied okay 48 percent and almost 57 percent of parents with children ages 11 through 13 those awkward middle school years uh, reported that their children were bullied and almost 60 percent of parents with children between 14 and 18, just the prime, shall we say, early adolescence and on up through 18, reported that their children were bullied. And then about 54% of parents with children over the age of 19 reported that their children were bullied. But it's very common what they had found, uh, Comparatech found, that, um, you know, right between, I would say, ages uh, 6 through 19 and and a little bit older, that is where most bullying occurs. And granted, it could occur in school. It could be uh, online and so forth. um, But it was quite telling (laughs) But they also took it one step further and they wanted to know okay, what kind of bullying is going on here? And so uh, the most common specific types of cyberbullying that teens experience often included, uh, like, say, offensive name calling. That, was, that came in somewhere around 42%. Or spreading false rumors. That was 32%. Or receiving explicit images that they didn't ask for about. Twenty-five percent of the of these teens experience things like that. Or constant asking of who they are or what are they doing or who they're with by somebody other than a parent. Well, that's up there, too. That's about 21 percent. And then there's also physical threats and having explicit images shared without their consent. Okay. And unfortunately, girls are more likely to be victims of of a cybercrime, while boys are more likely to be cyberbullies. And if you've um oh this this came out a few years back, but um, anybody remember the Netflix series Thirteen Reasons Why? I mean, that series was all about uh bullying, cyberbullying, and shaming behaviors. But um, the researchers also found a significant crossover between, you know, in-person bullying and online bullying. Um, They found that 83% of students who had been bullied online within like the last month they had this survey were also bullied at school. You know, and and just you think about a child, you think about a teenager going to school and becoming bullied and then they come home and now they're cyberbullied. Like where do they go to get away from this? You know, how um where where is a safe place for them if everywhere they turn in terms of like some sort of social interaction, they're experiencing this bullying behavior. And also um, researchers found that uh, that those who identify as lgbtq and and so forth not only face more significant bullying in person uh, but they are also more likely to be bullied online compared to those who identify as let's say straight okay and uh, the consequences of this kind of treatment it also led to an increased rate of suicide. Among some LGBTQ communities and may result in decreased um, let's say uh, educational opportunities, okay or or graduating and so forth. okay? And so what does all this have to do with the cancelled culture? Everything. Because when you think about it unfriending or deleting somebody, you know we we might think we can justify it, but when it goes to the extremes, when it goes into this cancelled culture, yes, it can be taken too far because we're seeing this you know an emerging trend in in today 's society that produces such devastating effects in people. you know we are social creatures. We do interact with one another. We depend on one another for practically everything. But what do you do when the very relationships you've come to depend upon or interact with are now unsafe? Or you're canceled for for something that somebody deems as uh, offensive without any further explanation. See, it's... it's, um, it's an emerging trend in today's society but it it's it's an all too familiar societal pattern that continues to be played out down through the centuries you know it living in a canceled culture different people but it's the same old story because the cancel culture movement of today is really nothing new it's just basically a re- uh, renewal of the same old pattern of displaying contempt and intolerance towards people who are different in one form or another. Okay? And, you know, let's, let's go back to the old saying, you know, those who do not learn from history are forever doomed to repeat it. And this is one area in which people in general have not learned from history because it keeps happening over and over and over again. And it, it's actually, society's intolerance, when you think about it, society's intolerance toward the potential for uh, another to, to transform their previous behaviors. Um, if, you know, the message is, if that is all you are and, you will, and this is all you'll ever be, you know, and, and that image or that reputation is then captured and encased in the, in the public shrine as something less than. Okay, well, you do not measure up and you never will, so don't even bother. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, I talked about Dr. Seuss because Dr. Seuss was in the limelight of this canceled culture discussion. And um, I had shared a little bit about his life and how he came to write the book, Horton Hears a Who. And, um, you know, throughout Dr. Seuss's life, you know, he was a a brilliant uh, illustrator. And uh he was hired during World War Two and uh to draw some pretty disparaging um pictures and comics regarding the Japanese people. Um and and it was just it was quite devastating at the time. Uh and and the Nazis were doing this too against the, the Jewish people and so forth. It it's, it just seemed to be this satire that was out there. But um after the war After, you know, things had settled down, the war with Japan, um, Dr. Seuss was hired by uh, Life magazine to go back to Japan and to go to Tokyo and to interview kids. And he's like, well, what am I going to ask them? And uh, on the plane ride over, he, he came up with his very simple question. Uh, And he just threw the interpreter, he just said, Kids, draw me what you want to be when you grow up. Okay, don't tell me, but show me. Draw it. And uh, the kids, you know, they loved that idea. Just turn them loose with a bunch of crayons, and they they just had a ball doing this. And uh, when they were done, they just sat together, and Dr. Seuss was so overwhelmed by what he had seen that um, he realized that uh, everybody is important, even those who are very, very small. And this is the whole point of Horton Hears a Who. And he was forever transformed by that experience, and he gets home to America, and he writes, Horton Hears a Who, and he begins to uh, alter his life. He begins to shape his books in just very transforming ways. And of course, if you've ever read Dr. Seuss, you know uh, just that there's some very deeper, deeper level uh, truths that are there that reflect all of humanity. Okay, and uh, if you ever doubt me, just pick up the book, Oh, The Places You'll Go, and read it, and tell me then afterwards that you're not inspired, okay, because I don't think that's going to happen. I think you are definitely be inspired, especially by that book, Oh, The Places You Will Go. <clears throat> well, all in all, this uh, cancel culture, or I think it's also called a, a call-out culture, is a a modern form of ostracism in which somebody is thrust out of some social or professional circles or whether it be online or social media or in person. And this is where the term comes from. It's, It's this people who are subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. Okay, And it's uh, unfortunate uh, because I read another article on this from uh, Kimberly Wilson. She is an author of the book, How to Build a Healthy Brain. How to Build a Healthy Brain. And she states that the cancel culture often denies the person who is being canceled the most basic of human opportunities. That is to apologize and to be absolved. And she says that, you know, this is very difficult because the road to redemption is often blocked by the indignant mob. The road to redemption is often blocked by an indignant mob. And she also cautions that a quick apology is often viewed as insincere. okay? Um, because it doesn't, you know, people have heard down through the centuries again of the apologies, but it's more like throwing salt in an open wound. Okay, so, um, but yeah, a person who either writes something offensive um, or, or draws something offensive or it's just, they don't even know what they did that's offensive, they're not given the opportunity to make amends. They're not given the opportunity to apologize and to be absolved. Now, granted, if there is a crime committed, by all means, okay, by all means, they have to be accountable for that. But do we, as a society, want to shut that door on them permanently and just say that they would never change, that that's all they're ever going to be? That's all that they can become? Okay. I don't know if we would say that about ourselves, Because we would be really quick, I'm sure, to say, but there's more to me. You don't see all of me. What you see is just a little bit. So you can't say this is the end-all, be-all of who I am. But I want you to get to know me, and you'll see more to me. I mean, if we're going to say that about ourselves, why can't we say this to other people, about other people? You know, is there... You know, the rush to be judge, jury, and executioner in this cancel culture just doesn't allow people to be understood. And it's like, where did that come from? You know, where did these drawings come from or that kind of um, inappropriate uh, posting on, let's say, Facebook or Instagram or, or something? Okay. So, um, you know, certainly, to understand where that came from, and to give that person an opportunity to say, "Oh, yeah, you're right," that was certainly inappropriate. I did not realize just what that was going to do to people, so i am I'm terribly, terribly sorry, and I will take it down, and I will never post something like that again, okay." That is a sincere apology. That is a person, um, you know, taking responsibility for what they have done, as well as also taking advantage of, you know, to be reinstated, if you want to call it that, too, or to be absolved or, you know, to find that redemption instead of being forever exiled in, in, in one way or another. Okay. And, um, you know, this is something that our kids are watching, too. You know kids, grandkids great 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 grandkids, and so forth, you know uh because children, and we did this too when we were their age, we learned through our mistakes, right, I mean, at least I hope we did okay, uh and no matter how 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 severe the mistake was, um we were taught to admit the wrongdoing, you know apologize, say you're sorry. Demonstrates some sort of remorse. Okay, you may not have to break out in crocodile tears, but there's some sadness that goes with that because you realize how it hurt somebody else. You know, and and make amends if if we need to make amends and we learn and we grow. Okay, and and that's how kids are raised. But with a cancel culture, um, you know, by denying adults you know, the same opportunity to, uh, sincerely apologize, you know, demonstrate remorse, make amends, learn and grow and and all that. Um, it just disregards our imperfect nature and it really stymies our potential for growth really stymies, you know, for us to discover the very best things about ourselves. Okay, Well, Again, as I said, the, the cancel culture, there's nothing new about this going on because one of the things when I was working on my doctorate, um, I did work in the area of disenfranchised grief. And this is grief that's not allowed to be shared because society has a major problem with uh, either the type of loss or who is doing the grieving if they're you know very elderly or very young, society might promote the message of, well, they don't really understand, so they can't feel the pain and that loss and so forth. Um, or just even the 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 kind of death, the kind of loss isn't recognized as legitimate by society. And this was a time when it was back in, you know, the, the world of HIV AIDS, where there was such a stigma around the type of death, or even with suicide, the type of death, people didn't talk about it. You know, and, 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 you know, being in church or other public areas, I didn't, I've never um, heard anybody stand up and, and, you know, raise their hand and say, you know, everybody, I, I'm i asking for your prayers. I'm asking for your good thoughts and good vibrations about, you know, I, I lost a very good loved one uh, because they had died from an AIDS-related death. Um, Or, you know, my brother or my lover or whoever, my spouse, okay? I've just, I've never heard that. And I always was curious about this, of like, why is that? The very places which promote um, on a daily slash weekly basis, places that promote, you know, like this is the place to ask for forgiveness. This is the place to find reconciliation, this is the place to discover the very best parts of yourself. Well, they often turned out to be the very places that further shamed and wounded and excommunicated because of the type of loss, okay, or some other reason. And uh, even as a young boy, I had a major problem with this. This was just something that pushed my little buttons all over the place. I just could not tolerate when somebody is down. You know, help them up, but don't kick them when they're down. I just had no patience for that, you know, and and the cruelty that was shown to others just based on, well, that's just the way it is because they're different from everybody else. And, and you know, that's what I was raised with and that's what I'm going to do and everything. And it's like, uh uh-uh. ah, no, this is just flat out wrong. Okay. So, again, um, I said learned this at a very young age. I don't, I don't know. It just, it just pushed, like I said, my little buttons all over the place. Um, and I just always had a hard, hard time with it. And rightly so, because it helped me understand, appreciate, and embrace the other side of the cancel culture. And that is that no matter how deep or how far a person is canceled or told to live in excommunication, um, you know, they always, always were able to find the grace of God. That just because they were out of reach of, let's say, society, they never were out of reach beyond the grace of God. Well, I would really love your love to hear your heart on this matter. So if you, again, if you would like to call in, invite you to do so after the break, that number is 888-627-6008, and I'll be taking your calls, like I said, after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Howe, and I'll be back with you in one minute. Welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Uh, before we continue today's broadcast, I just want to say a quick word about next week's show. I've uh, entitled it, What Does Death Teach Us? What Does Death Teach Us? And I'm kind of taking a lesson here from the Katha Upanishad. Um, and uh, just one of uh, India's uh, greatest writings, uh, just come to uh, read and, and love and cherish. So uh, we take a look at the Katha Upanishad and in, in the teachings there, among other teachings throughout um, history and society and, and how we ought to be living in the face of death. And just the impact that it has on our relationships, or I should say, should have on our relationships. So that is uh, next week. I think we're still in the month of uh, March. I think that's March 26th. So uh, tune in 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or noon Pacific Standard Time. Well, earlier in the broadcast, uh, we were talking about the devastating effects this cancel culture has on people. Uh, this cancel culture or the call-out culture, as it will, is this modern form of ostracism in which someone is just excluded from you know, one's uh, – circles of of influence, the social circles, professional circles, family circles, whatever it be, you know, it could be online, it could be social media, or even it could be in person. And those who are subjected to this ostracism by society are said to have been canceled. And here's the interesting point, you know, as I said earlier, there's nothing new to this. You know, this has clearly been displayed down through history. And when you look at the pattern that history just keeps, again, kicking down the road because this is one of the lessons that, you know, people refuse to learn about history. So it just keeps repeating itself. Canceling somebody is really not actually about morality. It's about dominance. It's about control. Okay, you know what I'm saying here. All in all, canceling is not about morality; it's about dominance and control. Okay, and it's not a a, not an attempt to help you be a better person or to see a genuine error. Um, You know, it's an attempt to control you, and the people doing the canceling do not necessarily have that moral high ground, as it were. We, we, we would like to think that they do, but um, if they did, they would extend an opportunity for that uh, forgiveness or an opportunity to apologize and to be reconciled and so forth. But when you really look at it, when you start stripping away the layers and everything, the cancel culture is all about dominance and control and it just because you you hear the messages you and you listen to the tone and you see the results, and you realize it's not so much about morality, okay not so much about ethics, it's about how I can control you, it's about dominance and so forth, okay well. Um, Throughout history, there have been certain diseases that have often carried a a social stigma and uh, have often struck fear and contempt into the hearts and lives of people around the world. And we can just go back in biblical times, you know, we could say, well, it was was there with leprosy uh, or tuberculosis, let's say in ancient Greece or the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages or uh, the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, in the late 20th century. And now we have COVID. Okay, and uh, all in all, societies have displayed this pattern of purposefully disenfranchising people who contracted these diseases, okay? And and, and initially, this, this reaction was seen as justifiable, you know, or, or, or necessary in order to prevent the further spread of communicable diseases, okay? And that's... That's not a bad thing, okay? You know, we just know that uh, with, um, you know, coronavirus and COVID-19, yeah, we had we, – well, we still do. We have to protect ourselves because we just know how devastating um, and, and just how quick, um, you know, the, uh, the COVID can be spread. But yet, down through history, you know, many afflicted people um, interpreted being, let's say, quarantined by society as, as a way of society displaying contempt for its sick. <clears throat> and, and as a result, I mean, many people felt stigmatized you know, by their illness or, or shunned and alienated from fully participating in their communities as persons of value and worth and um, there's one particular author uh who has done quite an extensive uh research on stigma in general and that's irving goffman uh g o f f m a n irving goffman um he you know he noted that uh, it was actually the greeks who originated the, the term stigma ancient greeks uh to refer to let's say bodily signs or designed to expose something unusual and negative about the moral status of the person who bore that stigma. And these signs, so to speak, were imposed by society, and they were either cut or burned into a person's body, which, in a sense, advertised their condition, whether it be they were a slave or a criminal or a traitor. And, unfortunately, that behavior still carries through today. And this act of branding signified to everyone who saw it that the recipient was a blemished person or they were ritually polluted and they were to be avoided especially in public places and these these markings uh, the stigma not only spoiled a person's social identity but it also cut off that person from society and and as a result it it forced them to live in isolation in a very unaccepting world and from this aspect it appeared that as uh, though there was no way out there was no way to remove this outward sign let alone then recover from the emotional wounding from such harsh treatment okay and uh maybe you recall reading in school the scarlet letter and that was Hester Prynne, who was branded with the Scarlet A for adulterous. And um, she was made to wear that in public. Uh, and, and it was displayed, displayed for all to see. And, you know, people didn't want to be around her, according to the story. And, and people shunned her. And, you know, they name-called her or they gave her some disparaging look and, you know, just went... Uh, you know, t- t- uh, at her and, and uh, ridicule, scorn, shame, you name it. It just kept going on and on and on. Well, when you think about it this way, these um, th- this stigma or this branding or these uh, markings, um, you know, weren't always spoken. I mean, but society clearly distinguishes between people who are, let's say, uh, unclean, unacceptable versus acceptable, uh, you know, clean versus unclean, uh, lovable versus unlovable people. And what I came across in just looking at disenfranchised grief is that people living with certain diseases, and, and like HIV, AIDS, or leprosy, and so forth, were often viewed with contempt because they, you know, they might have contracted this disease possibly through, let's say, socially deviant behaviors, you know, whether it be sexual promiscuity or illegal intravenous drug use or prostitution or whatever, okay? And um, one of the things that was quite sobering, if I can use that word, quite sobering for me is that I found that uh, whenever I counseled uh, family members and friends whose loved ones died from an AIDS-related death, that upon the person's death, upon the loved one's death, society's stigma is almost quickly transferred to the surviving loved ones. You know, it, And it's almost like a guilt by association. Okay but um yeah i mean this is just something that continues down through history that there's this guilt by association that if you you know are related to the person or simply because you love the person um you're guilty just like them and the stigma goes on and on and on and the cancel culture mentality goes on and on and on okay well let me ask you this question. Has anybody out there ever done a family tree? Okay. I mean, it's very popular to do. Um, uh, well, well, what did you find? You know, when you're going back through the the centuries, however far back you could go, did you find people in your family tree, you know, who were good, upstanding moral behavior? Or did you run into some ancestors who were a little shady, so to speak, uh, or perhaps, let's uh, stay with the tree analogy, that we started to shake our family tree and something or someone unexpectedly fell out. And perhaps we discovered a bad apple or two and we're left with, well, now now what do we do? What does that say about me? Um, what does it say about them? What does it say about the family and so forth? Okay, but um, do we ignore them? Do we skip over them? Do we become discouraged and filled with shame, believing that one bad apple, you know, spoils the family line, spoils the whole tree? Well, perhaps we started digging into their circumstances and the times in which they lived, you know, because after all, that context is important. And perhaps in doing so, we found out that, um, say, our ancestors may have been overwhelmed to the point that their resiliency was exhausted. Or perhaps it was chipped away over time by, let's say, relentless oppression. Or maybe we discovered that our ancestors had to do what they had to do, not being necessarily proud of what they did to survive or defend and raise families and to make ends meet and so forth. But let's say that they had to do what they had to do. Okay. And and what about our ancestors who didn't always make the best decisions, or even consider the impact that their decisions had on the relationships of their time, especially those who have yet to be born? Okay, um, the, it was the actually the Iroquois Nation in their constitution way back when that encourages people to look out for the welfare of the whole person, uh, not just in the here and now, but to con- carefully consider our actions. Because what we do affects up to seven generations into the future. Okay, And that might be hard to grasp, but think about it. Let's say we go back to Revolutionary War times, uh, mid to late 1700s, somewhere around there. Well, that's about seven-ish generations in the past. And you think about the people who lived back then? Did they realize what they were doing would have an impact on people who have yet to be born? But we're here now, okay? And, um, and we just never know the kind of impact that we're passing on uh, to you know the generations who have yet to follow us. By you know, and and we may not realize what we pass on through our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our assumptions our perspectives, our prejudices, and so forth, okay? Well, also, let's consider that, um, you know, that uh, our ancestors may have never considered that this additional physical or psychological or emotional or even spiritual burdens that were being placed on others because of how they lived, you know how they benefited from it, or how they were burdened by it, you know our ancestors may have used drugs and alcohol and maybe struggled with some other form of addiction because it was the only perceived thing available that they had to hold themselves together, which then only made matters worse for themselves and their families uh, because one thing you know addictions do run in families as mental health illness and and so forth um, you know, and just other things that are being passed down. Um, but uh, perhaps our ancestors were also unaware of the the psychological or emotional roles they played in order to, let's say, unconsciously maintain uh, chaos in the family or some codependency or confusion or self-sabotaging behaviors, okay, that came along with the addictions, okay? Uh, maybe as you shake that tree, you know, you find you, your ancestors either attempted or completed suicide because of their emotional pain and hopelessness. You know, something was too great for them to see any way out through their problems. Okay. Or maybe our ancestors initiated a cycle of uh, physical, emotional, sexual abuse out of their own experiences of being canceled or being ridiculed, abused, or beaten, or shamed. Um, or, on the other hand, maybe some of our ancestors may have been the abusers. You know, those who struck fear in the hearts of others through, let's say, extortion, or greed, or manipulation, violence, and oppression. And maybe our ancestors were guilty of, you know, pulling the triggers, or exploding bombs that ended the lives of many. okay perhaps when we start shaking this tree we're going to find that our ancestors uh, went along with family and community atrocities in order to get along with those in power or maybe our ancestors reflected a silence a silent difference in the face of these atrocities and either reaped the benefits or let's say raped the benefits from systems of oppression well, The more we know about history, the more we realize that our work is cut out for us because there are so many patterns being enacted over and over and over again. And not to generalize the whole issue, but I kind of sum it up this way. You know, these are all self-inflicted wounds that society is doing here with the cancel culture and so forth. You know, it's the same old story that has been told down through the centuries and you expect different results. And, you know, the self-inflicted wounds is, you know, society creates a problem, then wonders why there is crime or extortion or hatred or shame. And, and, uh, or, or why are we even hearing the cries of people who were put under a rock of humiliation and prevented them from getting out from under it. Okay. Yeah, actions speak louder than words, but are we quick to dismiss the entire person before we get to know them fully? Um, You know, if we wouldn't tolerate that in us, why would we tolerate that as a a way of treating somebody else? Probably one of the most uh, profound... Lessons that um, I was taught um, was actually through um, James Baldwin. He was a, uh, a writer, playwright, poet, activist, and so forth. And um, it was in the like, uh, I think it was like the early to mid. 1960s he and william f buckley had a debate at cambridge university and uh interesting topic it was uh growth of american i think it was called the growth of the, of america at the expense of the american negro or something like that but again it was the language of the times and uh james baldwin was uh, first to speak and um, he pulls uh, his uh you know probably one of the greatest points in his debate was uh, he just pulled it right from the headlines of of just um, you know people who went down to uh, vote in uh, Selma, Alabama, and uh, there was over three hundred students who were just simply holding a silent protest outside the courthouse, and and then you know Sheriff Jim Clark back in that day um he waited right at the entrance to the county courthouse and he was beating and arresting people who wanted to register to vote even at the slightest provocation he just had no tolerance for this and at one point he uh was uh punched in in the jaw and knocked down by a de- by a demonstrator annie lee cooper whom he was trying to make you know go home by poking her in the neck and chest with a cattle prod after she had uh, just been there for hours at the courthouse, and she was one who attempted to register to vote. Okay? And this is the context which uh, James Baldwin refers to when he talks about, you know, how close do we want to get to know somebody, okay? And there's there's more than just one way to understand a person. And so James Baldwin says that, uh, you know, Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama, he really cannot be dismissed as a total monster, you know, because I'm sure he loves his wife and his children, and maybe he even likes to get drunk. And one has to assume that he is a man like me. Um, but he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, or to menace with the gun, or even perhaps to use the cattle prod. I mean, something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast. Because what happens to the woman is ghastly. It is horrific. But what happens to the man who does it is in some way much, much worse. And their moral lives have been destroyed by the plague called color. And that was the context from which he was referring to. And this is the lesson that uh, the cancel culture is promoting. You know, do we take time to get to know the person who has either committed the crime or has written something that, oh, that is downright offensive, or that we don't like, or has has drawn something that we don't like. Um or, or can we at least have the courage to just stop for a second and just ask the question what may have happened in that person's life that they felt it was appropriate to post something like this or to draw something like that or whatever. What what are were they even aware of it? You know, something, you know, perhaps very painful must have happened to them, you know, because what they do in, you know, either committing acts of violence themselves or whatever, um, yeah, is is you know, as James Baldwin says, very ghastly. But for the one who does it um, is in some ways much, much worse what happens to them. It just seems as though they are perpetuating their own self-inflicted wounds. But with the the canceled culture out there, sorry, you know it's it's very difficult to offer reconciliation when you don't care about the rest of the story when you don't care about you know what else is going on in the person's life but you just quickly reduce them to being nothing more than a blink in the eye of history You know, something that happens, you know, perhaps in, um, you know, society that has created this or perpetuated this aspect in in people that they don't know why they do what they do. Because perhaps they have no control over it because, let's say, perhaps it was handed down to them. Okay, so, um, you know, the canceled culture... I I hate to say it, but it almost sounds like it's here to stay because of the long, drawn-out history of stigmatizing people, of ostracizing people, of branding people with uh, the public display of contempt to go live somewhere else. Or go over there where we cannot see you, and so therefore, you know, you're out of sight, out of mind, and we don't care about you. But as I said before the break, that no matter how far a person is excommunicated, or how far they fall, or how far away they are made to live, it's never, they are never beyond the reach of God's grace in their life. And you never know. We reach out to people to get to know them. We just might be that very uh, point of grace, shall I say, that starts the healing process in the person so that they can ask for forgiveness or they can make amends or something like that. But for a cancel culture, just to say, that's it. You're done. Go away. Never want to talk to you again. There's no hope of reconciliation. And then we turn around, and we wonder why society still struggles with issues, you know, self-inflicted wounds. We have to watch these very carefully. You know, it's because whatever we put out there is going to come back to us in one form or another. You know, whether you call it reaping what you're sowing or karma or or whatever, it's the same thing. It's a self-inflicted wound. Okay. Well. I am Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Uh, Invite you to tune in next Friday at 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or noon Pacific Time, where again we can uh, spend an hour uh, hopefully talking together and and, uh, sharing our thoughts. Uh, And we are going to be looking very closely at what death can teach us by looking at the Katha Upanishad. So until then, everybody out there, please be safe. If you haven't consumed all your corned beef and cabbage from St. Patrick's Day, please do so because. That won't keep too much longer. But, uh, yeah, please be safe. And until we hear from each other again, uh, may God always hold you in the palm of the hands. Take care. For an answer or just to leave a thousand comments or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk. It's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.